Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me, so I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy, and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Actor, actor, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, James Holland, and today I'm talking to Vicky Unwin. And we started to get quite interested on the podcast in family stories and, you know, this idea that it's, yes, of course, it's Churchill and Hitler and Roosevelt and Patton and Monty and all the big names and stuff. But actually what makes the Second World War so incredibly unique is the enormity of 
ordinary people getting caught up in extraordinary affairs. Uh, and the amount of people that ask me about how they trace their relatives, whether it's a great uncle or a father or grandfather or whoever, and how you go about it. Well, Vicky's done that twice over because both her parents had remarkable wartime experiences. Um, and, and Vicky, you started off with your mother, didn't you? So how did, how did that all come about? I mean, what, what prompted you to kind of start delving into, the, into your mother's wartime past? Well, actually, it did really start with my father, but we'll, we'll, we'll rewind that because I started, re- okay, I, okay. I started researching him out of interest of discovering that he was Jewish when I was in my late 30s. But then, you know, life happens and I forgot all about that or it, it went on the back burner because I had kids and a job and all that sort of stuff. And then um, my mother um, died in 2009, uh, very suddenly, actually. Um, and when I was clearing out her house, I found these huge bin bags, black bin bags, just stuffed full of envelopes. And they had, you oh, know, 19... Goodness. 38, 1939, 1940, and in all these envelopes were letters. Um, and In a bin liner, so that could have easily been chucked. Yeah, well, I knew my mother was a hoarder, um, you know, because she was of that wartime generation who washed up cling film and you know, <laughs> saved yoghurt pots yeah, 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 and all yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and and she, licked the plate clean almost. Well, yes, yes, if the cat didn't. Um, and um, so I knew that she was intending to write her memoirs. She'd already written one book um, about something completely different. Um, but she told me that she'd been collecting all her wartime letters and things and she was going to write her memoirs. And so when I found these uh, sacks full of letters, I you know, threw them in the car and I thought, well, you know, one day I will do this for my mum. I will do her memoirs. And shortly after that, I actually broke my hip in a skiing accident. So I was stuck in Switzerland, uh, sitting on the sofa for nine weeks without being able to put any weight on my leg at all. Um, And I just decided to sort through the letters and started chronicling them, putting them in order um, and doing this really, I mean, I'm sure other people do it much more efficiently, but I got an old Excel spreadsheet going and I started sifting through the letters, numbering them and you know, saying what the content of each one was and then highlighting a few phrases. And that's basically how I did that research. And I did the same, actually, for the letters uh, in my second book. But this was a huge amount of work because my mother wrote to her mother. In the beginning of the war, when she first joined up, she probably wrote every other day for two years. That's amazing. And they were all there. They were all there. And then when she was in Egypt, she probably wrote, well, for the rest of the war, she wrote once or twice a week when she was able to. So I had thousands of letters. In fact, I'm trying to get them into the um, Imperial War Museum who are interested because the letters are extraordinary. And this is what quite a lot of critics or you know, commentators have said, in that they record an ordinary woman's war. Not, as you were saying earlier, Patton or Monty, or I don't think there were any Mm. senior women officers really in those days because it was so sexist. But, um, you know, she was a very humble Norfolk girl who left school. So tell me about her. Tell me about her background and everything. Well, um, she she actually had a very unhappy home life. Um, She was uh, born to a a social climbing Norfolk mother, one of ten children. Uh, farming stock who had somehow managed to track down my grandfather who was younger than her and married him and he was a very gentle 
army officer actually he was in the sappers in the first world war and got a military cross and i actually found in my mother's things of of course (laughs) his medal and the handwritten citation by his commanding officer of what he had done um anyway so they had two children and she ran a uh, ran a boarding house in hunston during my mother's childhood and she went to the local school in in uh, in i suppose in hunston somewhere called Rianva College, wherever that is. And then after uh, school, she went to Secretarial College um, just at the start of the war, where her older sister had also gone. So, But why was her childhood unhappy? Well, her mother really didn't like her. Um, doted on Even though she wrote to her all those letters? Well, now that's the most ex- interesting thing, because lots of people say, why did your mother write to her mother when she obviously had such a difficult relationship? Um, well, first, I, my grandmother loved my mother's older sister, and used to beat my mother. And part... Oh, God. Yeah, and, uh, and was really very unkind to her. Uh, and my mother, on the other hand, absolutely adored and doted on her father, who, it was always rumoured, was the illegitimate grandson of Lord Sackville, as in... So he would have been Vita Sackville West's half-illegitimate brother. Um, How brilliant. So, and my grandmother was a great social snob, and actually, even in those days, my mother really railed against you know, being bourgeois and towing the line and doing what she was told to do. So she left home as soon as she possibly could. And and that culminated in her joining up as soon as she possibly could. But I think the interesting thing about, you know, the question, why did she write those letters, is I think we can't imagine it, actually, because we're so far away from that with social media, emails, you know, whatever. And, of course, our generation has very different relationships with their children. But in those days, there was a sense of duty. You know, you did write to your parents. And of course, when you read my mother's letters, they're quite hilarious because when she goes to Scotland where she was doing her training, every letter is, can you send me my red jumper? Can you send me my fur coat? I'd like an evening dress. You know, what about my pearls? I need two new pairs of stockings and, you know, the food's awful. Send me some apples. (laughs) <laughs> so I think mothers were quite well, useful. It, well, it's someone, it's someone. I mean, I've seen that before with other with other letters from from very young people who are sort of going off to the war, and it, it and it's that sudden moment where they're they're on the cusp between two parts of their life. Yeah, they're, they're sort of they're shedding their childhood skin and moving into an adult world, but but the the remnants of that childhood dependence are, are still absolutely there, aren't they? Completely. But I th- and it, I think it vanished very soon after when she finally got an officer commission and went off to um, went off to Egypt, you know, six weeks on the boat. Uh, so she joined the Rens? She, she joined, joined the, the Rens, uh, Women's Royal Naval Service. Um, and do you know why? Yes, because she had uh, her first boyfriend, a chap called Paul, who I think was a Newcastle lad. I can't remember what ship he was on. Anyway, he was in the Navy and that just seemed to be the obvious thing to do. And also, yeah. I don't know if uh, you know this, but the Rens were considered a cut above for the ladies. Yeah. So compared to the Royal Definitely Air Force... had the smartest uniform. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was what nice girls did join the Wrens. And, you know, mum wasn't going to be a rating or whatever they call I think they call them ratings. She, was, she wanted to be an officer. And yeah. she really went for it. Uh, and she became, you know, an officer uh, when she turned 21, which was the earliest you could do. Yeah, that's amazing. And why, why did she so particularly want to be an officer, do you think? Do you think, that was, do you think that's part of the kind of... Her mother rubbing off on yes, her, or is, yes. or is it just personal? It is. The apple doesn't fall far, as they say. You know, she really wanted... <laughs> and I think she also wanted to show her mother that she could be a success. And I yeah. think a lot of the stuff about... Uh, well, a lot of the things in the letters and a lot of the reasons why she wrote the letters were to say to her mother, 
look, mother. Yeah, exactly. I, I've really made it. I've really made it. I'm, you know, I'm hobnobbing with all these, you know, dashing uh, officers and I'm having the time of my life. And I mean, you know, she talked about the parties and the opulence, but she did still send parcels home. I mean, my mother was a very nice, generous person. I don't want her to sound unfeeling. I think she felt so guilty yeah. that, you know, she was sending parcels home, you know, at least once a month full of things that they couldn't get in, in Britain in wartime. And she joins up at the uh, in September 1940, doesn't she? So yeah. she's, she's, it's sort of end of the battle, towards the end of the Battle of Britain. Um, I mean, is, is there is there much about those early the first year of the war in her letters i mean no i think i think she was very um naive really um there's quite a lot about the training and what they did and you know they all used to train on ships which weren't really ships they were sort of um, officers although they did have one ship that she trained on and the king and queen came to see them and that was very exciting but uh. i think the other thing that's interesting is if you're just a lowly you know non-commissioned officer and then an officer and then she was in charge of censorship you couldn't write really about the war except en passant because first of yeah. all her letters were censored and then she censored other people's letters. So right. the letters do require some quite careful reading. But if you re- if you do read them carefully, you are repaid with insights into, you know, the great things that happened, especially in the, in, in the Far Eastern uh, battlefields, because that was really the turning point of the war. I mean, yeah. you know, what she did, which was, first of all, she was in Alexandria, and her boyfriends were all uh, in the Eighth Army and fighting, you know, in the battles of El Alamein. Uh, and I think you can sense, you know, she was very worried. You know, the boys have gone off. I don't know if I'm, you know, when I'm going to see them again. And you sort of think, if I'm going to see them again. Yeah, ever, yeah. And she always had three boyfriends, you know. Um, <laughs> I was engaged on and off throughout the war as well. Um, and then, you know, she was in But, the... but to be engaged that often and, 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 to, and to attract that many boyfriends, I mean, she must have had a rather sparkling character. And She was very beautiful, actually. In, in an unusual name, she, in an unusual way. She had a, a big nose but, and she was quite plump, but I think that was all fashionable in those days. I mean, she was very, very pretty. And she was very vivacious and good fun. Um, yeah. So, and, and it just comes out of the letters, you know, that there was lots of fun to be had. I mean, they're always, you know, going off dancing at shepherds or having drinks at groppies right, yeah. or going out on little expeditions. But her serious nature um, also showed itself because she... When she was able, she went off on leave. She went to um, what they call Palestine then, which is now Israel, and up to yes. um, Lebanon and Syria. You know, and she went off on her own. Um, Amazing. And, you know, by train. And, and she had lots of adventures. I mean, there's a fantastic... The longest letter she ever wrote was about eight or nine pages, was about during the flap, which was... I don't know yeah. if you know... No, um, yeah, yeah, beginning of July 1940. Yeah, the Rommel's army were 90 miles away from Alexandria. And... Um, Everyone was terrified. They were about to, to you know, the tanks were about yeah, to roll right. up. So she escaped on literally the last train out. In fact, she missed the train and she was picked up. I was just rereading this passage this morning. She was picked up by an old friend of hers in his army truck and they raced the train to get to the next station where they bundled her head first through an open window and threw in her luggage. <laughs> and she ended up in um, Ismailia, um, you know, uh, several yeah. hours later with all the boys, um, where she had to actually sort out, because she was a senior officer, all the accommodation for all the evacuated wrens. So she had a very interesting time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I also think that, that, you know, I mean, Cairo and Alexandria in that time were, were incredible places. I mean, if you're, if you're someone like your, your mother, who's come from, come from Britain, you know, it's had a 
sort of uh, a nicely sort of you know middle class background but and privileged in many ways but still kind of quite sheltered Completely. to suddenly go out to the, the to the middle east would have seemed incredibly exotic and you've got lots of lots that's familiar there lots of young officers dashing young officers and, and the like um but it has also got sort of palm trees and you know fabulous food or all, all the things yeah and, and and all the kind of you know the, the the fabulous kind of exoticism that you would associate with with Egypt and and Palestine and the Middle East and of course you know you don't you don't have blackouts in the same way that you do back in England and you know it is a there is a sort of roaring social scene with the Gazira club yeah. and Mina house and horse racing you, say, you mentioned shepherds and groppies and, yeah. and all the rest of it you know there's 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 swimming pools and cocktails and places to be seen and lots of you know and there's theaters and i mean I've, I've got these all these travel books from from egypt in the 1930s and 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 stuff that was sort of written about it during the you know travel guides and stuff during the war uh, and, and it's amazing how cosmopolitan it is and, and how much one can see and do from kind of operas. You can go and see operas in Cairo through to cinemas, to theatres, to, you know, literally anything. I mean, yep. cabarets, the whole shebang. I mean, you know, what fun. It was. Um, and it was. you're sort of, you would have a feeling of, you know, if you're if you're a cipher officer like she is, you, you'd have a, an incredible feeling of, of sort of worth that, you know, what you're doing is helping, is contributing. And at the end of the day, you've got sort of gorgeous young officers that you can go and have cocktails. Well, I think I think that is what is interesting, actually, because, you know, reading the letters carefully, she is in that cipher office, um, you know, on night duty and day in, day out. And she did, in fact, she was instrumental in planning the invasion of Sicily, which was with Admiral Ramsey, which was the turning point of the war. And she was so proud of that. And her mother was, mm. didn't, you know, say anything. But she said something like, I don't know how you don't even mention, you know, the work that I've been doing. And that just yeah. shows the needle between them. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and I think, again, there's another point in the letters where she looks at the vanquished Italian fleet um, She's there to greet mm. it, you know, sailing into Alex. And she sort of says, oh, all the boats that I've been tracking and ciphering, you know, all these uh, past months, and here they are. And God, did they have a party that night. <laughs> you yeah, know. amazing. Well, the Italian fleet was the most modern part of the Italian armed services, I'm sure you know. Um, I mean, you know, lap radar and things like that. But, but you know, so a lot of those um, serious warships were comparatively modern. They sort of built in the 1930s and so on. You know, and they were they were kind of sort of, not quite state of the art, but not kind of far off it. And um, yeah, it would have been an amazing thing, and an absolutely amazing thing when you've been working on that. You know, to see a fleet come in. You know, we're we're, we're sort of in new. To, we we kind of don't really picture it now because our fleet is so diminished. But the scale of a fleet, yeah, a wartime fleet, when you see it coming in, it would have just seemed so enormous. I mean, that would have seemed such a gargantuan victory. I mean, it must have been incredibly exciting for her. Yeah, and I think, you know, she was allowed to write about things like that because they, they were in the public domain and they were in the news. And when she of writes course. about things that happened like that, um, you really get a sense of how exciting and how excited she was yeah. uh, to be in that place at that time and seeing the theatre of war unfolding. Um, Absolutely. And how much research did you have to do around it? I mean, you said you had these thousands of letters and you had to kind of, you had to sort of swat up a bit to, to, to contextualise what it was that she was saying and understand the kind of, 
the hidden bits of what she was saying. Well, I, I mean, did you did you sort of take yourself off to queue, or did it was it just sort of reading secondary sources? Or? Well, I think I'm a bit of a lazy lazy writer actually. But secondary sources, but I found that um, gosh, I can't remember his name. That Australian journalist wrote an absolutely amazing book. Alan Moorhead. Alan Moorhead wrote that absolutely amazing book about the Second World War. And then yes. there was, I found another book, which I thought was also interesting, uh, you know, very secondhand, about Operation Husky, which was the invasion of Sicily. Um, so I got a lot of the really nitty gritty bits of detail around the things that I wanted to go into, like the, you know, the battles of El Alamein and, you know, what the conditions were like, and about Operation Husky, because she, you know, she glossed over it all. But a lot of the other stuff about the Second World War, you know, it's kind of all in the public domain. It's not very difficult to find out, because when I wrote that book, um, I was I was actually living in Singapore and I finally got all the letters transcribed and um, I was kind of busy and I don't know, I think my daughter actually had just died then. So I was kind of, I just couldn't take on too much brain overload. And so, no, I can understand that. So I just needed to edit the letters, which didn't take very long, uh, you know, just decide which ones to use and then construct the linking pieces so that the book flowed yeah. as a narrative that took you through yeah. the war. Um, um, so that book, actually, in writing terms, didn't take very long to write, whereas the book about my father, from beginning to end, took 10 years. So that was a much more, right. that was a much more serious research enterprise. So, so, so your mother, who had all these, these boyfriends and, and um, all this attention, I mean, how did she end up meeting your father then? So um, at the end... That was in, that was in Kiel, wasn't it, yes, at the end of the war? Uh, she went to Germany towards the end of the war, again, to do ciphers, and they kept on... Um, so when did she come back from the Middle East? I'm just trying After to... After Sicily? Yeah, she came back in about 1944, and then she was stationed in England for a bit. Uh, that bit doesn't get written about, because obviously, you know, she was with her... No. She saw her mum, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So there's this sort of gap. And then she goes out to Germany just before the end of the war. Um, just trying to look at my timeline... Yeah, she goes out in 1945, um, and then right. she's actually employed to be part of the denazification program because they kept a num Amazing. they kept a number of um, you know the people who they thought were appropriate on. Yeah. Um, and um, so, I mean, she she actually met my father first on VE day, I think, uh, when they went sailing, uh, and then she didn't see him for a bit. Um, because he was, uh, he was actually, his war was interesting because by that stage he was also involved in the denazification and um, right. he was Czech but spoke fluent German and he was in the RNVR and his naval career had been actually as a kind of intelligence officer on the ships. So he'd done the Russian convoys and all that because he interpreted Amazing. very well and he was also a very charismatic clever young chap and so but he also crashed her in his car didn't he He did yeah he did yes that that was that was i think that was after they were engaged funnily enough um <laughs> but he was involved and this is how they met in keel because he was involved in trying to get the um professor walter's walterwerke submarine team yes. over to england in fact the americans stole it in the end but he was part of ian fleming's uh mob uh, who were charged with trying to get all the German scientists and... You, the T-Force. The T-Force, exactly, uh, over to the West. And so with his fluent German and charm, he was part of that. And that's how they met in Kiel, because he was there working with Professor Walter. Um, and she was there working with, you know, various old codger admirals. And, and again, you know, they met and they, 
they had this extraordinary life. I mean, as you know, at the end of the war, and they felt very bad about it, actually, because <coughs> my father was, a, was, was actually socialist, sort of turning on communist at that stage. Um, they were drinking champagne, caviar, lobster, you know, everything, and the Germans were starving, and the British behaved incredibly badly. They starved the Germans, uh, you know, for at least, I don't know, I think it was about five years. Um, so they felt bad about it. But anyway, that's how they met. And um, so my mother was still dating lots of other people. But I think what was interesting was as the war drew to a close, and my father was actually younger than her, like her father was younger than her mother, um, I think she felt she couldn't go back to England. She had to get married. She just could not go back to suburban Durham, where her mother had now moved to, and, you know, live at home or go to London and be a secretary. She just had to find a husband and, and keep her independence. So as all yeah. the other uh, suitors melted away, <laughs> she found herself left with my father, who, as I say, was much younger and had spots on his neck and all sorts of things. <laughs> she doesn't paint a very attractive picture of him. But it was very dashing and very amusing. Yeah. So they got married at the end of 1946. But they were in Germany right till the end of 1946. So, you know, for a good year after the war ended. Right. And still doing this denazification de programme. Yeah. Yeah. How amazing. So tell me about your father then, because he's not really called Thomas Unwin at all, is he? He's called Tom Unwin. He's called... He's Thomas... Thomas Ungar. Ungar, yes. Uh, yeah. So my father was born in Prague, although the book is called The Boy from Boscovitz, but his family came from Boscovitz, and I like alliteration, so we called it that. Um, but from a very uh, Jewish Moravian family who had been, you know, uh, the mayors and the bastions of the community for, you know, two or three hundred years. Um, but his father um, had uh, sort of escaped the family and gone to Prague and was determined to be a writer, much against his father's will. And so he actually became, Hermann Ungar, uh, became a rather well-known sort of enfant terrible, wrote the most appalling books in some ways. Um, really, <laughs> I mean, really modern, um, uh, all about sort of incest and very existential, but very sort of of, of the time, but even before the time. But actually also... He was much lauded. I mean, Thomas Mann was my um, father's godfather and my grandfather's... Um, That's um, amazing. What do you call it? Sort of uh, mentor. And he was friends with Stefan Zweig wow. and Bertolt Brecht and, and, and he yeah. became a diplomat and, uh, and went to Berlin. All yeah. great. So all the greats. So my grandfather was part of that great literary set and my father was brought, born into that literary set. Uh, and that's got to rub off, hasn't it? Well, you think. Well, this is what my that book is really about because my grandfather was a very strange, depressive man uh, who did write these extraordinary books. But if you met him, he was, you know, full of bonhomie, wit, charm. You know, always liked to be the centre really? of attention, like and no one could believe that he wrote yeah. those books. Um, and also. Although he was a Czech Jewish writer, he always wrote his books from the Christian perspective. So the I voice mm. was the Christian. That's yeah, he didn't want people to think that he was the Jewish character. We're going to take a short break now and we'll be right back with some more with Vicky Unwin. Welcome back. I'm here talking to Vicky Unwin. When you were growing up, Vicky, I mean, you knew about his Czechoslovakian background. 
I knew he was Czech, um, but we never knew he was Jewish. So I had this extraordinary childhood because after my parents got married, they were both very shocked by what they'd seen in Germany. And they both, my father in particular, had come back to England and, and just wanted to go and do something to make the world a better place. So he and took my mother off to um, the groundnut scheme in 1947, which was the Labour government's scheme sort of spearheaded by um, uh, Strachey, the Minister for Food, to provide oil for the very much food-depleted England. And it was actually, I suppose one could say it's a bit like Brexit, you know, the, the world's biggest fiasco where everybody knows it's not going to work, but people keep on doing it, you know, because right. that's the fashionable right, thing right, to right. do. So it, it, was, yeah, yeah. Um, it was really... So they went off uh, in 1947, um, and they became, you know, African colonialists, I suppose, uh, for right. the next... Well, right through until the sixties. So, where were they based? Oh, in South no, 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 but, in in, but, ta- in oh, Tan- Tanganyika, as it was then, which was where oh, yeah. which was yeah, where I was born. Yeah. So they went in forty seven, and then my mother, of course, started writing letters again. So uh, to her mother, because so got I got part, part two. two. So this is, uh, and that again is an extraordinary insight into the life of the early ground nutters because that was an extraordinary adventure i mean it was they were just landed in the middle of the african bush where they all decided to grow these ground nuts but there was no rainfall and no good soil and you know no one actually asked the question why the local african herdsmen only um grew grew cattle there and didn't grow any crops because you know it was obviously unsuitable well, it's a bit like karen blixen yes. it's a bit like karen blixen trying to grow coffee when there was yes. no previous. exactly it's just uh, um, evidence that that would work. Complete arrogance of the early colonial. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I, I completely. Uh, but but we've completely jumped the gun. So anyway, so they're in, they're in Africa. So but but so your father grew up in Prague. Oh yes. And how how does he how does he come back? How does he get to England? Join the join the RNVR ah, and become right. Tom yes, Unwin. we did jump the gun. So my grandfather Herman Ungar died when my father was six of hypochondria right he had uh, he was always claiming to be ill and then the one time he was really ill he got peritonitis and then died of septicemia it was completely unnecessary what because he cried exactly. wolf and no one believed yeah. him so that was one of the first fables my father ever ta- taught me about the little boy who cried wolf <laughs> it's just like my father so my grandmother who was also jewish very very beautiful woman had lots of admirers and uh you know, sort of prayed, there was a sort of did Prague soirees with ham sandwiches. I mean, they weren't particularly Jewish, it has to be said. So ham sandwiches and wine, yeah. and they lived in a beautiful apartment overlooking um, the river. And um, she had a boyfriend in the Czech uh, army, a colonel. Um, and when she saw all, he tipped her off, I guess, that things were beginning to go bad. Also, her first husband had left Prague already and gone to England with her first son from the, from that marriage. I think she thought, you know, she wanted to cover her bases, so she sent my father to England at the age of 16 to join her first husband and the half-brother to learn English, although his English was already very good because he'd been to the English school in Prague, which was quite well known uh, at that time. So off he went to age 16 and he was very bad at remembering anything when asked about things that he didn't want to remember, like many Jewish people who suffer survivor guilt or whatever you like to call it. 
So yeah. he wouldn't really say what he'd done, and he was meant to be going to do an agricultural course because I think the plan had already been hatched that they would all emigrate to Canada because Canada was opening its doors to um, Europeans, especially with a farming background. And my grandmother had, by that stage, planned to marry my father's uncle and his yeah his father's cousin. No, his father's cousin, that's right, um, who was a, a very well rich farmer uh, in Moravia. Right. So they had a marriage by proxy, uh, and that was all, you know, all set to go over to Canada. And then uh, this, he came after Sudetenland, um, but just before, well, he rang, he always told the story that he rang my grandmother from a phone box using his last pennies and said, you've got to come now. The, you know, the Germans are about to enter Prague. And indeed, her colonel got her the last, you know, train tickets out of Prague. Uh, a few days after the Germans invaded, uh, with my young, with my Amazing. young brother, uh, with his young brother, and she arrived. He went down to meet them at the docks, uh, I think in Calais or Dover or somewhere. And you know, she was just there with a suitcase right. in one hand, the little boy in the other, and all her jewels sewn into her fur coat. And so, Amazing. Well, so incredible. they then came to um, very near where I live now. Actually, they then came to live in Fairfax Road and Swiss Cottage, where all the um, Jewish emigres came, I think, from Czechoslovakia. At that time, it was a very, very um, Czech area. And they continued their musical evenings, you know, playing piano and violin and everything. Yeah. And then they got... Um, um, I can't think of that word. They, got, they decided to go to Wells. I think everyone was evacuated, you know, from the centre. No one was allowed to stay in London who didn't need to be there. So, again, according to my yeah. father, they stuck a pin in a map and uh, went down to Wells in Somerset where he joined uh, an armaments factory as a, I don't know what he was doing, um, and she uh, became the cook. She was cooking nice Czech meals with, you know, goulash and dumplings for the night shift. And, and it was what there is... that the story in, in, you know, takes... Was that considered a bit of a come down? Oh, my God. Her? I mean, she was a very wealthy Prague lady. Well, that's the, that's the sort of image I've got of her, and suddenly she sort of... As my father answer. said, uh, he said at one point in one of his letters to my mother, it's so pitiful to see my mother, who was once had dinner with presidents and ambassadors, you know, reduced to such poverty and banality, you know, teetering around the lanes of um, Somerset on a bicycle and cooking for the lads. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it was a terrible come down. And it did affect her for the rest of her life, actually. She became very eccentric um, and, you know, even taught me how to shoplift when I was a bit older because <laughs> she got this sort of wartime... Well, you can't really blame her, can you? I mean... She got this wartime mentality. But um, the, at the arms factory, my father met and fell in love with a woman who was several years his senior who already had two small children. And um, she got pregnant uh, while her husband was off at the war, missing in action, presumed dead. And my father and grandmother weren't having any of it. And the story differs according to who you talk to. I reckon my father knew as much as anybody about the baby. And he took himself off to Caversham to join the BBC listening project. My half-sister says it was my grandmother who wasn't going to allow her wonderful son to stay and, you know, be a country bumpkin. Uh, so he joined the BBC listening project, listening in to the German broadcasts. And then from... And he just designed his baby? Yep. He abandoned the mother and the baby um, wow. for, well, I think he hoped it would be for the rest of his life. 
But much later on, uh, they both tracked him down 45 years later. Goodness me. Wow. But that is, that is another story. But <laughs> that is another story. It's in yeah. the book. It's How in the book. Incredible. It's in the book. The, the, the plot thickens. The plot thickens. Uh, so then um, it was a short step from being on the listening project to joining the RNVR because, again, you know, his, his language skills were non-pareil, really. Of course. Um, yeah. So he was... So he could speak, obviously he could speak Czech, but he could also speak fluent German. Well, you know, assimilated Jews, that was their first language, German. Right. Uh, Czech was what you spoke to the, the peasants and the servants and uh, German. <laughs> it was a bit like the Russians, you know, the rich Russians all yeah, spoke yeah. French. Yeah. So, yes, he, he spoke, you know, beautiful classical German because that's what they all learned. Um, but uh, when they arrived in England, and this is an important bit of the story, my grandmother had said, right, here are your Catholic birth certif- uh, christening certificates. You're never, ever to mention that you were Jewish ever again. And he never did until, until I worked it out. You know. But but obviously he you know he'd never been particularly religious. Not at all. No, and I think interestingly, I mean neither he nor his brother were circumcised, so there was no way that he would ever be. Um, I mean his big worry. That's why he changed his name to Unwin. You asked the question at the beginning. Was yeah. if he was caught by the Germans, um, you know he would be shot immediately as a traitor. And if he'd been Jewish, it would have been even worse. But that, you know, so he changed his name. But if even if he'd been caught, there would be no way of telling that he was Jewish. He. Sounds right. terrible, but he, he, you know, he was blue-eyed, fair-skinned and, you know, sort of freckly. Yeah. Um, but he was just, he just, uh, you know, spoke this brilliant German. So then he did, um, he was on all these different ships during the war, you know, going around the coastlines, um, trying to uh, warn the uh, British Navy about e-boats, which were doing their huge damage at that time, uh, yeah. blowing up all the ships. And he was on, um, he did some preliminary trips for D-Day landings, but, but actually then ended up patrolling the fjords of Norway, which was also extremely dangerous. And of yeah. course, he was on the Russian convoys where he did about six or seven trips up um, to Murmansk and Odessa. Wow. Yeah. Which well, he said were terrible. He's a lot of fun. No, yeah. terrible, terrible. terrible. Uh, and of course, he spoke Russian. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course, because Czech and Russian are the same. You know, if you speak Czech, you speak Russian. And so he, so he was quite useful on those trips because he could um, negotiate various things with the Russians when they got to the other end. I mean, he, he, it was interesting because although he was very socialist, he then became a great hater of the Russians because he could really? see what they were doing to their political prisoners who were on the jetties with their, you know, covered their feet, covered in sack, yeah. sacking and, you know, and he knew they were political prisoners. And in fact, one of the things he did in the war uh, and the denazification part was he um, was part of the um, the convoy uh, which delivered the Russian sorry the German navy to the Russian navy which was the deal. So I don't yeah. know if you know the whole of the Russian navy went off uh, and uh, sorry the whole of the German navy was del- delivered to the Russians and he, there's some quite good stories about that trip. Um, I bet. And how did you find out all this? Did it, was this from, from letters as well or, or a combination of things? So I, having done my sort of mother's letters, um, my father was very ill towards the end of his life. He had um, Parkinson's and he was bedridden. And I'd been trying to get this story about his Jewish background out of him forever. And I did lots and lots of research through databases and all the Holocaust, you know, the Holocaust databases and so on. So I managed to work out a lot about the family. 
which he wouldn't talk about. Um, and then there was this thing. So when you asked him, he just said, I'm not going to talk about that. No, he said, oh, I can't remember. I can't remember. I just far too long ago. But so two things happened at the same time. He, he eventually, he did admit he was Jewish to me in a, in a very fraught meeting we had in that fantastic old, oldie English restaurant, Rules, uh, when I confronted him and he finally admitted it. And then later, when he was obviously dying, um, I said to him, you know, come on, you've got to come clean about all this stuff about my grandfather. And so he said, I've, I've left you this suitcase and you can have it after I'm dead. In the end, I persuaded him to give me the suitcase and I was able to go through the pictures... While still alive. ...while he was still alive and actually work out who was who and get a bit of a chronology. And then all the stuff came out about how he'd been writing to his father's publishers for 20 years and to people who'd been doing research on my grandfather's life. And so he'd been hiding these, this huge secret about his past in this suitcase. Amazing. And simultaneously, I then decided I would film and record him. So I used oh, to go down at the weekends and used to videotape him and um, uh, and interview him on tape, uh, especially about Africa and the Navy. Now, it's funny that, isn't it? He was very happy to talk about Africa and he was very happy to talk about the Navy and his war. He was very happy to talk about all sorts of things. But the minute you got onto his childhood, it was just... The tap the was turned down. Yeah, the shutters came down. He wouldn't talk so about it. So did he talk to you about kind of, you know, the time after the war with Walter, uh, with... Um, um, you know, was it Helmut Walter and people like that? Uh, yeah, he Helmut did. Helmut Walter, I think it was Helmut Walter. Wasn't Helmut Walter, yes, yes. Uh, who, who, who Moonra- Ian, Ian Fleming named his uh, big baddie Moonraker after him. Professor Walter was the uh, was the baddie. Yes, of course. Well, the interesting <laughs> thing about Walter is Walter actually. I mean, I mean, thank goodness. But the Germans quite often had amazing assets that they never made the most of. Um, and there's no question that the Type Twenty One U boat, which he was pioneer of was a game changer yeah you know it, it set the bar for the next 20 years after the war of, of how submarines and it was the first proper submarine because actually yeah. a mark seven you know the, the classic kind of wolf pack submarine is actually a submersible rather than a submarine it spends most of its time on the surface think about the the the, the valter um type 21 with its, its special engines and stuff is that they could uh they could actually operate faster under the water and stay under the water longer um and that would have just you know the Battle of the Atlantic was, without a question of doubt, the most important theatre in the entire war, yep. because that is through which all the supplies came for, for the Allied cause. And that had that been had he been taken more seriously in the 1930s when he was developing all this stuff, that could have just made such a massive difference. And as it was, I think only two of the Type 21s ever saw any um, operational service at all and, and never did anything. You know, is that the, the one... The is that, well, he was working when my father was um, working with him on the... Um, the version which was powered by uh, peroxide. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, yeah. Th- th- these are the ones. Yeah, these are the ones. Yeah, was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, so it was an extra because it didn't wouldn't have used any fuel. I mean, it would have been absolutely extraordinary. That's right because I remember reading about it. They would they went you know as faster than anything ever known. Yeah, and, and they, well, they could do, they could do something like eighteen or twenty knots or something under the water, which is just just it's it's such a game. It's, it's such a massive leap forward in terms of submarine technology. Um, and as I say, you know, that was that was the basis of submarines for the next 20 years. And it's only once they become nuclear-powered submarines that it's kind of the next 
generation really really takes over so you know he really was a brilliant a brilliant man and a brilliant inventor and and um, uh, he yeah, thank a, goodness that the germans didn't make the most of him well he right? was a he was a absolutely out and out nazi you know he had the the uh the the iron cross diamond encrusted and uh, my yeah, father yeah. my father said he was actually you know he could joke with him but actually underneath it all he was you know he really did believe yeah. But my father did get the... Uh, they got those um, prototypes out, shipped off to Barrow in Furness, um, yeah. of, those, of those submarines. And in fact, the whole team... I think Walter had gone off to the US by then, but all the boys who went with the prototypes uh, were invited to my father's wedding. I can't imagine whether they came or not, but I, I just can't imagine what my How mother's true. mother would have said with all these Nazi <laughs> German yeah, yeah, yeah. inventors in coming to Durham. <laughs> yes, anyway. yeah. There was quite a lot of correspondence about that, but history doesn't relate whether they ever went or not. <laughs> That's absolutely incredible. Wow. And did he, I mean, and so he was quite happy to talk about all that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was very happy to talk about the war. Um, and then, of course... And both your parents, did they, did they, I mean, you know, in the denazification programme, I mean, did, did they sort of come across any senior Nazis other than Walter, of course? Well, my mum, yes. Uh, I was just reminding myself today, my mother went to the Belson trials did she? Yeah, uh, in Lüneburg, because she was actually, you know, she had a real conscience. And I think she said in the letter that she wrote to her mum about it, she said, you know, I think every single British serving officer or, you know, whatever, should go to these trials. And she described it in quite, you know, grim detail about these 45 or whatever they were terrible people with you know things around their neck and she was particularly struck by how ghastly Irma Grieser looked um, with her long blonde dark hair she was the commandant of Ravensbrück who was a real sadist um, and I mean my mother was just horrified I, yeah she really yeah. wrote very strongly about about what she heard and about how awful these people were and how they really didn't seem to care no so no. it left a very no, lasting impression. No, it is extraordinary. Impression. It is absolutely extraordinary. Left a lasting impression on her. I don't think they really... I mean, there's some quite, you know, some funny letters about my father going around the country, you know, meeting old German counts and things in their castles, all living yeah. in abject poverty and going off and looking for some other people who are white Russians who are friends of his, one of his friends from Wells. And But um, I don't know. I think he may have met quite a lot of people, actually, but he never really told me who they were because he would have moved in those circles. My mother moved in very British circles. And all she would say in her letters to her mother, she said, it's very, you know, it's great being with Tom because I get to see all these things that nobody else sees. And he goes right, right. around speaking German and, you know. Um, so I think it was an interesting and, and, time. And tell me, Vicky, you know, you're, I mean, how, how did this, this... I mean, what what influence did this have on your own relationship and understanding of, of, of your parents you know can, when you're reading your mother's letters can you recognize your mother in in that young 20 something person who's gone, gone off on this extraordinary adventure oh yeah no I can hear her I can hear every word can in you? my head I mean she writes as she talks um, yeah that's one because <clears> it? not everyone does no she I mean she it was it was more they were sort of the letters were kind of like diaries they're very they just flow, yeah. you know, it's, it's more like a diary than a letter. It's not, you know, she just lets us a stream of consciousness about what she did. And, 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 you know, they were so often and so frequent. It's just, you know, one event after the other. So I can really hear her. And I find it fascinating to see how her life developed and her she became an archaeologist and an anthropologist and a great traveller. And I can see all that developing. 
you know, from that mm. time in Egypt because she was so interested in the people and the places and the artifacts yeah. and, you know, um, in a way that I suspect a lot of people who went during the war weren't particularly interested in that sort of thing. They just, you know, it just was what it was. Yeah. And you must be rather proud of them, what they what they achieved and what they got up to. I am, actually. And I think that's why I wrote the books. I mean, the second book is... My father had a very dark side, and the, so the second book is actually an exploration of what makes a good man bad, which is the sort of the strap line, because he did become very dark and, and uh, you know, like he had many secrets, like denying his his Jewishness and denying his daughter and all those sorts mm. of things, and yet being the great um, saviour and redeemer of the world in his work for refugees in the UN and so on. You know, right. everyone thought he was marvellous, marvellous, fantastic person, but actually... To his family, he was really not, because he abandoned. Right. He abandoned. So you had quite a complex. He had quite a complex relationship with him, did you? Yes, I had a complex relationship with him. Yeah, um, and this this book was really kind of a way of trying to, you know, balance the good with the bad. But I think it's important from a historical point of view. Both books are important because these were just ordinary people, yeah. and we need to read those histories because that generation is gone now. They're both dead. You know. Captain Tom died last week and, you know, he was younger yeah. than both my parents. But, you know, he saw service. They're all dead. And yeah. uh, we have to find a way of recording the histories, not just of the generals and the Churchills and all these people. You know, that's been done so many millions of times. But of just the ordinary man and woman who went to war for things that they felt were really important to them. Yeah. Well, I, you know, fantastic. I, I, I mean, you know, needless to say, I... I echo everything you've just said. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, one of the great privileges of what I do is is getting these eyes on people. I mean, I'm doing a very detailed um, um, history at the moment on one particular unit. And, it, and it's fascinating to kind of home in on one particular unit and all the characters that were involved. And it just gives you this whole different depth and, and perspective. You know, it's it's no longer just sort of units sort of, you know, advancing here and going there. It is actual individuals and these very young men ha- have incredible responsibility on their shoulders and actually are also, it's, it's not just a responsibility for other people's lives. It's also for formulating tactical doctrine and all sorts of stuff that they're all doing at, at one particular, you know, from the seat of their tank, so to speak. I mean, yeah. it, it's just extraordinary. But Vicky, that's been fantastic. Thank you. I've really, really enjoyed that. And uh, The Boy from Boscovich and Love and War in the Rents. Those are the two books. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming on. It's been really good fun. Good to talk to you, James. All right. Cheerio. Bye. Bye.